If it happens to be your first time here or first time in a while, welcome. My name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here at Hope. I am so thankful to have you here to worship with us. It's a privilege and an honor to get to sing to Jesus with you and to get to look at his word together. And that's what we're going to do now. There are many sections, we're in Matthew 4, there are many sections in, in the book of Matthew, one of my favorite books of the Bible, definitely in the top 66. Um, there's, there's a lot of sections in Matthew that are really, really exciting and are probably highlighted in your books or in your phones, verses that you've thought about if you've grown up in the church, that you've memorized, that you've considered, that you've kind of ha- maybe even have on art in your home. Uh, this little section probably is not one of them. Um, And that's the beautiful thing about the sufficiency of Scripture. You know, the Bible says that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God and that it's profitable for us to be able to be complete, to be equipped, to be ready for every good work. And why? Because every single word in the Bible reveals to us the character of God. It reveals our true identity It shows us the person and work of our Savior, Jesus. And then it shows also, it gives us an example of how we can live a spirit-filled life that would please and worship God. So this is a valuable, valuable book for us. Every single word of it. And so maybe you've passed over this section of Scripture before, but I want to say that this set of verses is going to be valuable to us today. It's going to show us our faithful God who has good plans for us. It's going to show us our Savior who invites us in. Uh, And and so in this section, we're going to see a little bit of a pivot in the text and the life and the ministry of Jesus. This is a transition for Jesus. And if you've been reading or if you've been following along as we've been going through Matthew, you will probably have noticed a pretty interesting life trajectory for our Savior. He's worshipped as a baby, but then he has to flee to Egypt to escape the murder of babies and young children by Herod the Great. He heads back to Israel, but now Herod's the, Herod the Great's son Antipas rules, and so they head up to Galilee, to the northernmost tribes of Israel, to distance and protect themselves from danger. And then for the next 30 years, Jesus lives in anonymity and relative obscurity. This is God we're talking about. God has sent Jesus to earth to come and be the savior of the world. And for the first 30 years, Jesus is nowhere. He's, no, he's nowhere to be seen. He's just moving around from town to town. He's a bit of a vagabond, right? And I love it because it just shows us the patience of God to fulfill his plans. But Jesus comes back and he gets baptized. Incredible things happen. Heaven opens up. John affirms him. God affirms him. There's a dove somewhere. It's really cool, right? And so now's got to be the time to start the public ministry for Jesus. Nope, not yet. Now it's time to be tempted. And it's time to be tested in the desert by himself. Okay, he gets through that. The angels have ministered to him. Now it's time to start at the public ministry, right? Well, yes, but not in the way that we would think or plan. Let's read the passage together. Verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, 
have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the main idea for us today. Jesus fulfills God's good plan and then invites us into his kingdom. Jesus came for the purpose of setting, uh, of completing the plan that God has for us. And part of that plan is inviting you and me to be in relationship with him. There's three kind of big takeaways from this passage that I see. First, God has a good plan. Second, Jesus is the promise that we're all looking for. And third, Jesus invites you into himself. First thing, God's plans are good. God has a good plan. How many of you have gone through different transitions in life, right? Every single one of us, right? You, you've moved across town. Uh, you've got married. You've had kids. There's school choices, different things. We constantly have situations that come up in life that bring about change and transition. And sometimes those things are really positive and really exciting. And sometimes those things are really challenging and hard. And sometimes they feel really benign. But the takeaway that we want to have and the thing that we want to consider is that God is in all of them and his plan is always good. A passage that I would encourage you to memorize and go back to time and time again is Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In every situation, in every circumstance, good, bad, or indifferent, God has a good plan and a good purpose for those who love him. God has a purpose for everything that we go through. Victories and great moments in life. We can probably think through the Rolodex or the picture memories of the the, the wonderful things that we've seen, birthdays, anniversaries, promotions. Sometimes they're big days or small days. Ashley mentioned in the beginning of the service, a really good day. We had a day at home. Kids are outside. It's sunny. There's basketball on the television. My wife was happy. And when my wife is happy, I'm very happy. It was a beautiful day. Kids are on the trampoline, friends over, dinner. It's just great. And sometimes those are big days. Sometimes they're small days, just like that. But those days are gifts to us from a good God who loves us as his kids. But there are difficult and hard moments that we face in life because suffering is real. Every single person in the world has conflict and trial in life to varying degrees. Stillborn children, infertility, those are realities. The spots show up on the MRI. There's Down syndrome and strokes and Alzheimer's disease and dementia and Everyone dies and everyone gets sick and everyone feels suffering and pain. And by the way, the only things I've brought up have been physical things. That's not even talking about emotional and relational damage that we face. The, the world is busted. It's broken and everyone knows it. And we can look at suffering. We can look at the difficult things in life and say like, okay, like I've, I've done this because I put it on myself. I sinned. I did wrong. I, this is something that I've done to myself. We might look at it again and say, well, this is something that's been done to me. I didn't do wrong, but someone wronged me. And then the third way that we can look at it is I have no idea why this is happening. In every single one of those scenarios, God has a purpose for the things that we're going through. 
in the good things, God purposed to do that. In the difficult, trying things that we are going through, God will redeem and use those circumstances. Well, how do we know? Well, because God has a purpose through all of the things that Jesus went through. Let's look at the passage again, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Jesus hears that his cousin is uh, taken into prison, and so he leaves the Bethany area and heads back up to the region of Galilee, which is about 80 miles away, Seattle to Anacortes. And this is not an easy situation that we're talking about. This was an escape. The word he withdrew is the same word that was used with the wise men in Matthew 2. They were warned in, by an angel in a dream to not go the same way, to avoid the way of Herod. And so they departed and went to, a different, to, went to their country by a different route. This is a pulling back. This is, this is escaping and leaving the situation. Why? Because there was danger. He withdrew because his cousin was arrested. John was arrested, we'll see later on in Matthew, John was arrested by Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, the grandson now. They've got a messed up family. But like Herod the Tetrarch, he calls him out for Herod's scandal. Herod st steals his brother's wife, and John says in front of everyone, that is wrong. And so he gets thrown in jail because of that. So why does Jesus need to leave because his cousin gets in trouble? Well, because John emphatically endorsed him at Jesus' baptism just, just weeks before. I baptize you with water for repentance, but Jesus, who is coming, he's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so if, if John the Baptist is hot right now, Jesus is also on the list. And so Jesus has got to go into hiding. You know, this kind of reminds me of another story in the Bible. It reminds me of the story of David. Uh, David, this young shepherd boy, the youngest of his family, gets anointed king of Israel. He's God's chosen person would be the last picked by so many people, and yet God looks at the heart, and God chooses him. And so Samuel pours the anointing oil over his head, and immediately he becomes king, right? Is that the story? No. No, he goes back to the sheep. And then, yes, there's some pretty amazing things that happen. He beats a giant, and he becomes a great warrior, and all of those things, and yet still not king. In fact, the king that is in power, Saul, is actively trying to do him harm. He puts him into the battle to see him killed. And then he says, well, he didn't get killed by the Philistines. I'll kill him myself. And so where does David go? He goes into hiding, running from the, uh, from a ruler that is trying to end his life because of the promise that David has been given. And like David, Jesus is anointed and promised the kingdom and then has to live in this obscurity, has to separate himself from danger from rulers that want him dead. And so instead of this like grand public ministry that you might think or you might expect, instead of trumpets being blared, it's a retreat back into anonymity. It's out of the spotlight because the time for his biggest ministry act, it wasn't quite ready yet. There were some things that he had to do first. Verse 13, 
And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus heads out of town that he's grown up in, Nazareth, to go live around 30 miles northeast in Capernaum, right? This kind of like cute little sea town right on the Sea of Galilee. And the first time I read this, I was like, cool. Thank you for the information. Like what, what does that matter? Why is that important to us? It, it, it kind of seems like a random moment, doesn't it? And then that leads us to the question, do you believe that God's plan is good? That God knows what he's doing. That, that in good and bad and, and in seemingly benign or random moments that God has a plan and that he is actively fulfilling his promises. Has God been good to you? Let's get more personal. Has God been good to you in times of plenty? Has God been good to you in times of need? Has God been good to you when you don't notice or understand what he's doing? Has God been good to you when you aren't really paying attention to what he's doing? That was my issue. I wasn't looking at the text. I wasn't reading. I didn't keep reading. And Jesus going to Nazareth and Capernaum fulfilled God's word and his promise by the prophet Isaiah. It says that, so that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Who's Isaiah? Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, lived 700 years before Jesus. And he wrote prophecy pointing to the person and the work of Jesus. He, he writes this, verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Zebulun and Naphtali, they're part of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're Jacob's sons. They're pretty small tribes in the northernmost region. They're not important. They're not significant, pretty unremarkable. And isn't that how God works? Using ordinary, unremarkable, nondescript people and nondescript moments, and then he takes them and redeems them and uses them for his glory. How does he do that? Well, let's keep seeing. They point to the promise of Jesus. And that's our second biggest takeaway. Jesus is the promised light of the world. Jesus is the promised light of the world. Verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And when this word light is used, it's understood as a source of hope for salvation, for righteousness, for the goodness of God breaking through the darkness. And these passages, they point back to Isaiah's prophetic words. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Jesus moves and fulfills scripture. He picks up his stuff. He goes into a new town and he fulfills this incredible prophecy of this town that is nondescript. And then they've seen Jesus. They've seen a light burst through the darkness. And we're going to see that through 
many different things in Jesus's ministry later on. I love that passage in Isaiah 9. Later on, it gets to the, the famous passage, that the Christmas passage, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. He will have the government on his shoulders and beautiful. Why does God do this? Why does God send Jesus to be the promised light of the world? Jesus was given to us as a covenant, as, as a mark of God's commitment to us so that we can have real lasting hope. People living in darkness all of a sudden have a chance for new eyes, for new freedom, for salvation. People dwelling in death, in the shadow of death, the passage says, have been given the dawn of light. They've been given an opportunity for new life. Jesus is the promised light of the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, there's, there's many people here that have professed their faith in Jesus, and I thank God for that. And I've gotten to hear many of your stories throughout the 18 months that we've been together as a church. But I'd be remiss to think that there'd be people here that have been surrounded by Jesus and yet haven't put their faith in him yet. I, I know that there's many. And so I'll just love you enough to ask the question, have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is the light of the world and that it's only through him that you can find true and lasting hope? We are here on Sunday to celebrate that very fact. That he lived a perfect life, that he died a death that we deserved, proving the love of God, as Henty said before in communion, so that we could have eternal life, so that we could be in the kingdom of light. Do you believe in Jesus? I pray that today, that if you don't, that you will. That, that for the first time, that you would have your eyes open to see who God is, how much he loves you, and what Jesus has done on your behalf. Jesus is the promised light of the world. He's part of God's, of God's good plan. And this last thing, Jesus invites us into relationship with him. Jesus invites people like you and me into relationship with him. He says in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to me because I'm here. Turn to me because my kingdom is greater and grander than anything that you have ever thought through. Turn to me because my kingdom is coming. So does Jesus start his ministry? Absolutely he does. Not in the way that we think, not in the way that we would expect it. But what we're going to see over the next three years of Jesus's life, over the next 10 chapters of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus do incredible things and prove that his power is there and that his invitation is good. He's going to minister through the region of Galilee. This is going to be like his hometown for the next bit of time. He's going to assemble his ministry team. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to preach, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven. He's going to calm the seas. He's going to walk on the seas. That's pretty cool. He's going to send out disciples on ministry duty. 
He will feed the hungry. He will challenge the religious authority of the day. He will continue to fulfill scripture through his life as ministry. And throughout this time, he will constantly invite people into relationship with him. Sick people, broken people, they're invited. Young people are welcomed in. Old people are invited. People who look dirty, invited. People who are trying to act as if they're clean, they're invited in. Do you get what I'm saying here? Jesus invites you and me, knowing our brokenness, knowing our sin, knowing all the ways that we fall short. And he says, yeah, come on in. Come on in. I love you. And I'm going to prove it time and time again. You're hurting. I will heal you. You're broken. I will fix you. You're in sin. I will forgive you. He helps us right where we need. Will you receive the invitation that Jesus offers you today? Will you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Oh, I, I do pray that your eternity would change. I do pray that Jesus would work in and through your heart so that you would see the depth of his love for you. I don't know what moment you are facing right now. I don't know what kind of transitions you're facing. I don't know what things you're going through, what decisions you have coming up. But God has a good plan for you. Even in nondescript things or in times of trouble and in times of suffering, God is working his plan out in and through your life for his purposes and for your good. And he, he showed us that with Jesus. And while we're in the midst of our situations and in our transitions and in our trials and in our pain or in our victories, Jesus says, hey, like, come and talk to me about it. I've done all this stuff. I've gone through big moves. I've gone through people being wrongfully accused. I've been wrongfully accused myself. You can talk to me about it. I'd love to hear. In fact, come a little closer must be an intimate relationship with each other. Turn to me because I'm here. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Uh, we thank you that, uh, that you do invite us in. And we thank you that you're faithful. We lean on you and we rejoice in you for your, for your identity, for your work, and for the way that you care for us. God, I pray for my friends that are here that are dealing with situations that are challenging, uh, dealing with situations that feel really big. God, I pray that they would find their rest and find their hope and find their confidence in you. Uh, Lord, and then for my friends that don't have a relationship with you yet, that today would be the day that they would enter into a relationship with you. Um, God, for, for their benefit and for your glory, I ask those things. Amen.